This week, we discuss French authors on hash pastries, the power of French wine, and why it's good to have intentions before you smoke. Coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. Hello, my name is Mishka. I live in Paris. I was born in France. I have a home in British Columbia, Canada. I'm a writer and a publisher, and many people would say I'm an activist. That was Broken Gadget, with a nice, chill little jam titled Parisian Snake Charmer. While this week's guest has nothing to do with snakes, she does live in Paris, and she's certainly a charmer. That's right, we're talking to cannabis advocate, writer, and editor, Mishka Zelige Châtelain, pardon my butchered French pronunciation, better known simply as Mishka, which is what she prefers anyway. La Grande Dame du Cannabis also works if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Mishka co-founded Mama Publishing House, through which she has published several books, including her first title, Medical Cannabis, and the translation of The Teachings of Seth, which she did herself, as well as a three-part autobiography, which we will get into later on. She has a healthy fascination with spirituality and alternative medicine, fighting for unrestricted access to plants, stating that, quote, free access to plants is a birthright of all living creatures. And I, for one, could not agree more. On top of her activism and work in the literary world, she is also an ocean navigator, having spent a year sailing from British Columbia all the way to France by way of Panama. Last but not least, she is thus far the only female cannabis activist slash celebrity to have a strain named after her. I'll let you guess the exact name on your own, but I will add, it is a citrus-scented sativa haze, just as she likes it. At any rate, Mishka has an incredibly storied career in cannabis, and I couldn't wait to speak to her about her experiences. First things first, though, how did she initially get into contact with the plant? It happened in my 20s when I went to Canada to live for the first time. I was a teacher, and some friendly teacher passed me a joint one evening, and I was really scared. So I took a puff, but a very light puff, and didn't feel anything. And the second time it happened, I didn't feel anything. And the third time, finally, I allowed myself 
to let go and to open that door. That was in 1971. I had all the ideas that were common then in, in my home country, which is beware of drugs. You, you take a talk and you end up with a, uh, you end up a junkie. So I was really, really scared and I had to observe what was going on around me for a couple of times before I said, okay, this is fine, I can go there. So Mishka had a late start as far as trying cannabis goes, and it wasn't until the magic third time before she let go and opened that door, as she puts it. In her case, and in the case of many other people, uh, this became a lifelong journey. But a lot has changed since 1971, and the world of weed has changed tremendously since then. Before we get into the topic of modern methods of consumption and the rapidly expanding and ever-changing cannabis market, I wanted to discuss some cultural aspects with Mishka, specifically having to do with France and French culture. Most people don't really think of France when talking about cannabis, and most people don't think of cannabis when talking about France. But French writers are no strangers to drug use, and as early or late, depending on your perspective, as the mid-1800s, French artists founded a little club called Le Club d'Archichon, where the literary and intellectual elite of Paris would gather on a monthly basis to take part in so-called séances, where they would experiment with substances they discovered while traveling in places like northern Africa and the Middle so East. Those were literary people with a sense of adventure who tried edibles, majoun, the way it's prepared traditionally in North Africa. Well, they didn't know about smoking, then it came uh, the way it came, and it came as an edible. A very potent experience, because as you know, with edible, it can get really strong. So you read their accounts, and it, it's really, it really is almost like what you read about people on acid. They weren't advocating its use so much as telling their experience about it. Which It was also a time when... The West was discovering the East, and it was part of that discovery. Afterwards, Napoleon went to Egypt, and someone tried, someone who was on hashish tried to kill him. So that didn't help. So basically, if we look into the, the history of France and cannabis, we have to remember that France is the one country par excellence. And... You go to you go to church, you drink wine. It's the it's the blood of Christ. And you have any celebration, a wedding, you want to christen a ship, you send a bottle against it in in the, in the sacred way as well as in a, an everyday way. Wine is holy in France, so that made it very hard for this country to ha- accept the holy plant from another country, from another culture. I think this is basically why it's taking such a long time to become accepted in France. So there you have it. Thanks to the likes of famous Frenchmen such as Baudelaire, Balzac, Dumas, Delacroix, and Hugo, who would consume Dawa Mesque, a greenish paste made from cannabis resin mixed with fat, honey, and pistachios. Yum, yum, eat them up. The West was introduced to the wonders of cannabis edibles. 
In their little mansion, located on the Seine River in central Paris, they would explore these drug-induced experiences and study and describe their journeys. And journey is the right word in this case. Mishka mentioned that it was almost like taking LSD for these writers, and she has a very valid point. Edibles, as some of you may know from personal experience, can have a very different effect on you versus smoking or vaping, all thanks to the main active metabolite of 11-hydroxy-THC. So what is that, and where can you find it? Well, in its original form, it starts out as THCA, just like the stuff found in cannabis flowers, hash, and other concentrates. Things take a more psychedelic turn in the liver, which converts the decarboxylated form of delta-9-THC into 11-hydroxy-THC. As a result, the effects of the THC last much longer and can be a little, sometimes even a lot, more unpredictable. The effects usually last in the range of 6-8 to eight hours, depending on the dose, versus 2-3 to three hours after inhaling THC smoke or vapor. More than just a trippy experience, however, edibles are excellent at providing symptomatic relief from sleep-related issues and chronic pain, making it a potent medicine. But as Mishka mentions, France was, and still is, wine country par excellence, which has made it difficult for the holy plant of cannabis to get a foothold in the land of the holy fermented grape juice. But as I mentioned before, the cannabis market is growing, thanks to places such as North America, and its cultural acceptance is expanding globally as well, and France is no exception. I was curious as to how Mishka saw this increasing acceptance in her country of birth. Yes, it's in the air. It has to be when so many states are legalizing it. So it comes in the news and gradually it's making a change of opinion that ultimately would mean a change of laws. And the question is, when is it going to happen? For sure it's going to happen, but when? I have a book coming out that just came out in California and that will come out in France in March. Which is, which will be seen by a number of people as a coming out as regard to marijuana. I still like to call it marijuana, the good, good old Mexican name. Cannabis is, has been used in recent years and it's a Latin name and it doesn't come so easily on the tongue, on mine. France is not the only country where a change of cannabis or drug laws in general is well overdue, but as Mishka says, it's a matter of when, not if, at this point. Now, I realize I discussed the nomenclature of cannabis before, stating that marijuana, the Mexican name, doesn't sound right in a scientific context and that it has racist undertones to it. However, with respect to Mishka, her use of the word reflects her feminist approach to the plant, so I'll let this one slide. Plus, I love the sound of anything in a French accent. At any rate, many countries that decide to legalize cannabis for recreational use usually ease their way into it through some sort of medical program, and I wanted to know whether this was also the case in France. A few weeks ago, the French government gave the okay for uh, an extensive trial of medical marijuana that will be over two years. So it means in, I mean, it's good in a way, but in another way, it means they're giving themselves two years to finally decide if it's okay or not. Whereas so many studies have been published already that why should they have to 
to make their own. It's a long way away, but there has been a change of opinion over the last few years, and now most people would be in favor of legalization. I think it's the echo of what's happening elsewhere in the world. If a country as serious sounding as Canada legalizes, it has to change people's opinion of what this plant is about. I think it's a world movement. It's like dominoes. And sooner or later, it's going to hit France. Although legalization is not turning out to be exactly what we thought. We had a very naive idea that legalization meant freedom. It doesn't mean freedom. It means a lot of do's and don'ts and a lot of taxes. Legalization, when they legalized, they brought in, I think, 40 or in any case, over 40 things that unlawful behavior with marijuana. I find it odd that a country that regularly ranks in the top five of the World Health Organization's Global Healthcare Index is dragging its feet to provide a plant medicine to its own citizens. But at least they've gotten the ball rolling. To Mishka, legalization is not synonymous with freedom, as this involves a list of things you can and cannot do, over 40 by her count, as well as the dreaded T-word. And if you look at the current quote-unquote legal markets, such as Canada, California, Illinois, and other parts of North America, this is exactly the case. In Canada, for example, you're supposed to buy from licensed producers only. If you're buying black market cannabis, that money does not go to the coffers in Ottawa, but directly to the dealer, who also does not declare this transaction on his annual tax statement. The authorities don't care that you're consuming cannabis. They really care about the money involved in the transaction and where it ends up. California has a similar situation where the state is trying to do away with the underground market, which still provides for the bulk of consumers in the state, especially in the Emerald Triangle. And it was the growers and cannabis community that rejected so-called legalization attempts in the past. Legal dispensaries must also source their products from licensed producers, and that doesn't sit well with those who will end up paying the higher taxes. In Illinois, which just legalized recreational or adult use, taxes can be as high as 41% if you factor in local taxes in the city of Chicago, for example. While the state has allowed for home growing of up to five plants per household, if you are a qualified patient, Those without a card are not allowed to do so, despite the fact that there is literally zero difference between medical and recreational cannabis products in terms of their makeup. The difference lies only in the aim of the person doing the consuming. Now, I usually ask my guests what they see as the best model for distribution and consumption of cannabis products, such as the dispensary model or the social club model or coffee shops or a mixed bag. Mishka has a different vision. There's a, mo- a very simple model which I love, which is the tomato model. Most of the tomatoes that are grown in Europe, or a lot of them are grown by people themselves. A lot of people grow tomatoes. If they grow only one food, it's going to be tomato. Yet anybody can grow it, buy it, sell it. I think it's a very good model for weed. I'm not saying it has potential because governments want to get taxes just for that reason alone. It doesn't have, doesn't stand much of a chance. 
but I'm very attached to the idea of free access to plant for the people, which is a much broader approach than just cannabis. That is really basic as far as I can tell. Plants, they are our food, they are our medicine, and we need free access to them. Oui, c'est correct, tomatoes. Sounds a little odd, but let me quote American ganja guru Ed Rosenthal, who had this to say about the tomato model. More tomatoes are grown in America by home gardeners than are produced commercially. Yet there is a robust commercial market for tomatoes and tomato products of all types. Canned, vine-ripened, organic, sauces, soups, ketchup, etc. At the same time, small-scale specialty cultivators do well selling their produce at farmers' markets, and home gardeners with extra tomatoes share the bounty with their neighbors as gifts in trade or through informal sales. Marijuana could be handled in the same way. Commercial growers can thrive side-by-side with home and specialty cannabis cultivators. Now, take the current regulations in place for cannabis in places where you have legalization and try to apply them to tomatoes. Imagine having to first contact a doctor, then file a series of documents and pay expensive fees to get permission to legally consume a tomato product. Or imagine having a government employee breathing down your neck to find out whether you have the right license to grow tomatoes. Or having law enforcement come after you for buying San Marzano tomatoes off of a friend. Or paying a 30% tax on ketchup or tomato paste. You get the idea. At any rate, it seems pretty absurd to do so with tomatoes or any other plant for that matter, but at the very least, people have started to reverse the act of punishing others for using what nature gave us, though there still is a lot of work ahead of us. Speaking of which, what obstacles are the French dealing with as far as moving towards decriminalization goes, and how is Mishka dealing with the surrounding stigma? I think it's cultural, as I said before, it is a wine country, and something that comes from another culture is seen as something unknown uh, that opens your mind in this way. It's seen as a threat. It has been seen as a threat ever since it came in with what I like to call the hippie revolution. But gradually, more and more people are either using it or seeing it being used and they have to admit that it's not causing the tragedies that people talk about. The media have played a very ambiguous role because journalists were using drugs more than most people, and for that reason censored their writing even more. So the media have played a a doubtful role. But now I think there is a feeling, again, with so many states legalizing, there is a feeling that it's okay to come out of the wood. The first book that I wrote about marijuana, it was in 1977 or 8. And it really tried to appeal to people's sense of logic, to be objective, to show them that they had been told lies, there had been a lot of disinformation. And as years went by, I discovered that you can tell the truth, but if people aren't ready to listen to it, they won't hear it. 
And I, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, I came to feeling that the best thing I could do about the stigma, as you call it, is to be transparent about my own use, show that you can be a good person and use marijuana. And this is what the aim of this book is coming out in March in France. And Bicycon tells her story in English, is the name of the book. One reason why I like to use cannabis is because it connects me with my intuition. So if I smoke cannabis, I'm more likely to do what I really like to do, what really feeds me, nourishes me. And the other side of that is that you, um, if you smoke cannabis, you're less likely to do what you don't like to do. And that's very scary to, to governments. It's much easier to get out of frameworks and to be creative in new ways. Decades of prohibition have resulted in misinformation and stigmatization. And the media all over the world have served as the propaganda arm of the governments and corporations that have forced cannabis prohibition upon us. But as Mishka says, nowadays it's becoming more acceptable to admit to cannabis use in countries like France, as she did so herself. And by publishing several books on the topic, she has gone above and beyond the call of duty to combat the stigma, increase awareness, and show that good people do in fact use cannabis, particularly in a country where wine consumption seems untouchable. And the fact that cannabis can indeed alter your perception of things is precisely why governments are slow to act on decriminalization and or legalization. But moving forward, I wanted to get Mishka's perspective on the current situation of cannabis throughout the world and get her thoughts on having a strain selected and named after her. More and more, it's difficult to talk about cannabis because the cannabis you smoke now is not like what you used to smoke 30 years ago. The whole trend has been to grow stuff that will grow fast and bring in more money, be more productive. And to me, there has been a loss of quality as far as the type of cannabis that is stimulating, that is creative. I'm not sure why I'm, I'm telling you this right now. But I think it's an important notion. It's like if you say wine. In this country, you have some wine that are so totally remarkable. They will sell for thousands or tens of thousands of euros a bottle. And you have stuff that is really horrible to drink. And it's wine. And more and more, you have the same with cannabis. You have some great haze that stimulates you and makes you be even more creative. You have stuff that puts you to sleep and puts fog in your head. I know why I was telling you this. I was coming to tell you that I think good marijuana and writing make a great combination. Everything we're smoking now is hybrid. And at first you had mostly sativa and mostly indica, and then the mostly went overboard. And it's just sativa indicas, but there is no such thing anymore as a true sativa almost on the market. What I like to to smoke is old time sativa and haze. I'm fortunate enough to have had a weed created in my name, the Mishka. And when they told me that they wanted, to, when Sensi to, 
told me that they were thinking about it, my first reaction was, on the condition that I like it, it has to be a stativa, and if possible, a head. And they did, with the, which I love because it's perfectly clear. I told them what I wanted, and they came up with one, and it was just right. But I think they know pretty well what I was talking about. And I think they possibly were a good seed company to do it because they have or they have had all these great haze variety that I love. This is what I consumed regularly for a year, and I loved it. And now I'm smoking NL5 haze, which was bred by Neville, and it's the, the one plant that is selected out of 3,000. And by some miracle, it's still alive. And, I, and this is what keeps me company these days. So it turns out cannabis is not immune to the negative effects of commercialization, just like any other commodity, when profits become the priority. And this has also affected strain selections and variety. Land races are indeed very rare nowadays, as so many varieties out there are hybrids spread for yield and perhaps superficial qualities, such as bag appeal or THC content alone, forgetting about the most important thing in the process, which is the end effect on the person taking it. But thankfully, she has found something that allows her to stay in touch with what she felt after that magical third time back in the 1970s. With her experience and wisdom gathered over the past several decades, I wanted to ask Mishka for some advice for all the young bucks out there who are just getting started on their journey down cannabis lane. I would say keep it pure, and by that I mean don't mix it with tobacco. It's very important, otherwise you don't, tobacco makes you smoke and you think you want to smoke weed, but in fact you want to smoke tobacco. So keep them apart. That would be number one. And number two would be, the less you smoke, the more you are going to have fantastic effects from marijuana. And the more often you, you smoke it, the more ordinary it's going to become. So, and besides, it has a potential for addiction. It's a mild addiction, but it's an addiction nevertheless for a number of people. 10% at least of people who smoke regularly become addicted. So don't smoke every day. And if I had to give another piece of advice, it would be when you smoke, before you smoke, Give yourself, state, state to yourself your intention, what you want to get out of this smoke. Creativity, togetherness, feeling of connection with nature, whatever it is, state an intention. The more I progress in life, the more I see that stating an intention frequently is very important. It's giving the blueprint for the future. I see it as a friend and as an ally. It helps me, and I try to help it. Nature, we're part of nature, we're not outside of it. And so everything in nature is in a way made for us. Whether you use cannabis or not, remember that the most important thing you have to do is is to do what you like, what turns you on, what excites you. That's really the one aim. And the best way to judge your life 
is how much joy there was in it. So I wish you all a lot of joy. That's some sage wisdom there, kids. Remember, tobacco is not your friend. And if you can, save the recreational THC for a special occasion. That way, you'll appreciate it more. So, it's time to say adieu to our lovely guest. Mishka, la grande du cannabis. Thank you for speaking with me today uh, on the podcast. Thank you for being my guest. It was uh, a pleasure and uh, an honor. And uh, I wish you all the best with your upcoming book release in March of 2020. And a uh, fantastic rest of your Sunday. I very much enjoyed it. I really did, truly. Thank you very much. See you again. That's a wrap for episode 31. Once again, a thousand merci's beaucoup to Mishka for the interview. You can find her online on Instagram at from underscore Mishka or simply by writing her an email to mishka at mamaeditions.net, which she checks regularly. If you like the episode, please share with your friends and like-minded people on social media. And if you want to support the podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com slash criticalgrass and become a member. It will put a smile on my face. We'll be back soon with another exciting episode, so stay tuned. As always, my name is Bogdan. Allume en juin, mes amis.